Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I am story expert and girl who hasn't been a nerd for a very long time, Lonnie Diane Rich. And with me here today, keeping the co-host chair warm for Noelle, who is taking a well-deserved break, is Ian Martin of The Passion of the Nerd. Welcome, Ian, and thank you for ta- for taking the doom bullet for Noelle. Hello, hello. It, uh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> But I made it through. Glad to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Doomed aired on January 18th, 2000 and was written by Marty Noxon, David Fury, and Jane Espenson and directed by James A. Contner. A heads up to everyone listening, Still Pretty is a fully spoiled podcast, meaning that at any moment we can pull in references to anything that has ever happened in the Buffyverse, which includes all of Buffy and Angel. So if you haven't watched it all and you care about spoilers, then you may want to come back once you've binged the whole thing. I'm so very sorry. My contrition completely dwarfs the impending apocalypse. So let's go on patrol. In Doomed, we pick up where we left Buffy and Riley at the end of Hush, sitting together in silence. She tells Riley she's the Slayer and shares what she knows about him and the Commandos. She says they need time to process everything, and Riley agrees. Just as he's about to go, an earthquake shakes Sunnydale, and Buffy is, well, shaken. Sorry, I'm so excited. I mean, it's my first earthquake. It's not mine. In Xander's basement, the aftermath of the quake has pipes leaking all over the place, and Xander has to go to work. Those pizzas aren't going to deliver themselves. He tells Spike to fix the pipes, clean up, and do laundry. Willow returns to Buffy in their dorm room and reports that the dorm that still has no electricity is celebrating with a party. Willow suggests that Buffy take Riley, but Buffy begs off to go see Giles. She tells him that the earthquake is a sign of a fresh new apocalypse, but he wants to talk about the commandos. Meanwhile, Riley asks Forrest about the Slayer, and Forrest says the Slayer is a myth, right before a demon attacks a lab coat and they jump in to save the day. Animals rattling in their cages. Not all day. Let's got them all worked up. Earthquakes, man. Make everybody crazy. Willow goes to the party and sees Percy from high school there. He has a rude girlfriend who is threatened by Willow and says mean girl things because, as we know, all women are in constant sexual competition. For Percy. Anyway, Willow goes into a room to be alone for a while and she lies down on the bed for reasons. And when the lights come on, she sees a dead guy with a symbol carved into his chest. They rush off to report to Giles, who takes it with his usual calm reason. I'm telling you, I've seen this somewhere before. I just can't remember where. I mean, it's, it's like... It's the end of the world. Again? Again? Buffy goes off to find the symbol, which she remembers from a crypt in the cemetery. Because of course she does. And she finds one of the demons there collecting bones. She fights him off, the demon runs off, and there's Riley right outside, calling in the commandos for backup. He tells her not to worry about the demon, his guys will get it. But Buffy is not at all reassured about anything, least of all Riley. She tries to tell him it won't work, that they are doomed, but Riley's not the kind of guy to give up easy. I've never been this excited about anybody before. I'm not trying to scare you, and I'm not going to force myself on you, but I am by God not going to walk away because I think it might not work. I don't know what's happened in your past. Pain. Death. Apocalypse. None of it fun. Buffy dumps Riley, then goes back to Giles's for some researchy good times. The demons, it turns out, are bad and want to end the world. 
But they need a thing called the Word of Valios in order to finish their ritual sacrifice and bring on the end of the world. Meanwhile, Spike, who is reduced to wearing Xander's clothes because he shrunk his in the wash and there's only so much humiliation one vampire can stomach, has decided to put an end to his misery and just stake himself already. Willow and Xander interrupt when they come back to the basement to gather weapons, and Willow decides that they can't leave him there in that state. Think of that, Happy. If we don't find what we're looking for, we're facing an apocalypse. Really? You're not just saying that? Riley bumps into Buffy in the street and argues with her again, trying to convince her to look at things with a little more optimism, then accuses her of being both stupid and self-involved and scared, and maybe Riley needs to learn how to talk to women. I believe he already said Buffy was going to teach him, but anyway, it doesn't work, and she tells him to leave her alone. Meanwhile, Willow, Xander, and Spike fail to find the word of Valios at the museum, so Spike finally learns that he may not be able to physically harm people, but he can still deal some ace psychological damage. Buffy fights the forces of evil. You're her groupies. She'd do just as well without you. Better, I'd wager, since she wouldn't have to go about saving your hides all the time. That is so not true. We're part of the team. She needs us. Or you're just the same 10th grade losers you've always been. And she's too much of a softie to cut you loose. At his apartment, Giles realizes that he has the word of Valios in a box, just as the demons come in, beat holy hell out of him, and run off with it. He reports to Buffy that they're going to do a ritual and open the Hellmouth, so Buffy, Xander, Spike, and Willow go to the old burned-out high school to stop it. They find the demons at the crack in the cement that opens into a hell-mouthy cavern, and they fight. The demons are sacrificing themselves, as it turns out, and one dives into the crack, causing the earth to rumble. Spike realizes he can hit demons and jumps into the fight, having a great time, and he throws the second one into the crack. Oops. Buffy sends Xander, Willow, and Spike out as she deals with the last demon, and then Riley shows up and jumps in the fight. The demon dives into the Hellmouth, and Riley hooks Buffy up to a cable before she dives in after it. She somehow manages to overtake the demon in freefall and pull him back into the school basement where he then dies. And then Buffy and Riley go out into the school and find Willow, Xander, and Spike. Yeah, I was just passing by and I thought I heard people inside. You were just passing by in your G.I. Joe outfit? The next day, Buffy visits Riley, who's feeling bad about his utter lack of smooth, and she decides for reasons that maybe they should give this thing a go, and they kiss. Meanwhile, in Xander's basement, Spike has figured out a reason to keep on living. I say we go out there and kick a little demon ass. Oh, I can't go without you, Buffy. Is that it? Two chicken? Let's find her. She's the chosen one, after all. Come on, vampires! Urgh, nasty! Let's annihilate them for justice and for the safety of puppies and Christmas, right? Let's fight that evil! Let's kill something! Oh, come on! All right, so Ian, here we are talking about Doomed, and I really appreciate you coming on to Still Pretty to do this episode, which is not, I think, known as one of the better episodes of Buffy. And um, so what's your general feeling about Doomed? How do you feel about it? When I went back to revisit uh, Doomed, for the first time while I was writing for my own uh, set of reviews, I was kind of astonished by how poorly it holds together. Yeah. It's one of those episodes that I think people 
remember one or two parts of and then forget the rest. Mm-hmm. As opposed to something like a Go Fish, mm-hmm. where it stands out as being aggressively awful. <laughs> um this one just kind of ends up being forgettable, mm-hmm. uh, I think, for most people, except for, uh, which is true of even Go Fish, the one or two parts that, you know, stand out in people's minds, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, anything with, I mean, anytime James Marsters is on screen. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's memorable. But when you go back to write about something and sort of start picking it apart and looking at it. Holy cow, this episode is <laughs> not good. Yeah. Not good. It's, it's you know, uh, a couple of the writers have, I mean, even Joss specifically has a, have kind of a sitcom background. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the scenes that are really great mm-hmm. is when it's just sort of chemistry and comedy and all of that. And then just sort of from the the state of the composition, things are rough Mm -hmm. um and and i guess this episode is a little infamous as being one that was being made uh during the month that one of the writers was getting married i think it was doug petrie right uh Mm -hmm. was getting married and since most of the writers team was either in the ceremony or going to the ceremony uh this one didn't get as much time or development during that process and you can really kind of see uh the edges where (laughs) they sort of like Okay, good enough. Let's go. Right. And it also came after they had done Hush, and they put all this extra energy and attention into Hush, which was amazing. And then I think Doomed kind of just was the thing that came after Hush. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the other thing that's always astonishing to me is, uh, quick, name three writers on Mutant Enemy other than Joss Whedon. (laughs) Most of you probably said uh, David Fury, Marty Knox, and, or Jane Espenson mm-hmm. among those three. Mm-hmm. And those three were the ones credited for writing this episode. Yeah. So, okay, all the writers rushing to uh, do the wedding. And there are kind of a lot of cut corners all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, all but Giles's, uh, 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 all of the lines in the courtyard scene with Giles... <laughs> Uh, Anthony Stewart Head was clearly recording in a booth after the fact. Yeah, it, it's so distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, ADR is kind of inevitable. You know, you can't always get the actors back to the scene to do any particular thing. Maybe Anthony Stewart Head was uh, sick that day, mm-hmm. but every single line was ADR'd, and not, I, as far as I could tell, none of Sarah Mich- Michelle Geller's were. Yeah. So when she talks. Uh, you can hear her voice reverberating off parts of the set as a you know mm-hmm. a normal human being sounds, <laughs> and then every one of Giles's lines are crystal clear, no echo, no reflection, and it gives you that uncanny valley feeling. It really does. It felt so strange, and also because the delivery on a lot of those lines made Giles. It felt like somebody who kind of had an idea about Giles was doing a Giles impersonation. You know, but didn't yeah, really I, understand the character. It was really bad. Like a lot of first takes mm-hmm. uh, in the booth after the fact. Um, and the other thing, too, is it, when you talk about cutting corners, I mean, one way to normalize part of the problem, that Uncanny Valley problem that occurs when, you know, you do ca- those kinds of things in post, mm-hmm. you could have limited by having um, 
Sarah Michelle Geller do right. those lines in post as well. Mm-hmm. So at least their audio sounds the same. Right. But since it cuts from very natural, organic sounding audio back to Anthony Stewart head in a booth, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Um, the opening the Hellmouth, the opening the Hellmouth plot feels uh, insanely perfunctory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I have in my notes, is this the unself-aware Zeppo? Right, uh, right. Because the Zeppo, because... it makes sense because this is from Xander's perspective where everything always seems like the end of the world, you know, and what he's dealing with was kind of on a smaller scale in the Zeppo. Um, but it was fun to kind of see him viewing everybody else as, you know, this end of the world, highly dramatic, huge apocalypse kind of thing, you know. But here we're in the regular, kind of POV place and it just felt odd like we hadn't built up an apocalypse is a big deal and also it only happens in May so usually we build up to that kind of thing and then to have it suddenly in one episode be like well it's the end of the world you know felt a little again yeah yeah <laughs> I mean yeah they, they actually have that joke in there yeah and where <laughs> uh the Zeppo is using that as, as satire uh, or, or, or using satire to comment on that, right. and it's sort of meta and self-aware. Mm-hmm. This is just no, 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 no. Again, right. really, like it, not, not. I don't, not like. No explanation, no lore, no nothing. Just an Illuminati symbol. It's so right. fast. <laughs> Yeah, it's a yes. bit much. And and this episode is one of those episodes that is like incredibly forgettable. And every time I come back to it, I'm like, what happens in this episode? And I never remember. Everyone, yeah. Yeah. Everyone remembers Spike in the outfit. I mean, yes. that's that's the thing is it's the, the comedy is wonderful, mm-hmm. but there's no substance to the rest of it. Right. Like, and um, Spike is the B story. And it's really the most interesting thing about the whole thing. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's definitely like a bit much. Um so here we have you know, Riley. And the thing is, like everybody who listens to this show knows that I am not a huge Riley fan. And even in the beginning, like in the beginning of season four, he seems okay, but I have so yeah. much you know, like animus toward him based on who he becomes and what he does throughout the run of the series that I'm really trying to like see the good parts of him. Um, But I don't think that this really has it. I mean, you know, he doesn't tell her who he is. She tells him everything, you know, and he doesn't share that with her. He says, what are you? You know, versus Buffy's, who are you? You know, and Buffy's response of, you know, Capricorn on the rising Aquarius or something like that, you know, is is kind of good because it sort of points out that, you know, it's kind of a shitty thing to say to somebody. Um, you know, and he has, like, all this stuff that he's, you know, trying to, like, talk to her about because we just come off a hush where, you know, they say we should talk and then we have all this silence, you know, and then he's trying to talk to her and he's doing it so so badly and he's like I'm a walking bruise I don't see a scratch on you and she says you're not looking hard enough you know and the thing with Riley is that he's looking but he's really not seeing and that's kind of how he persists throughout the run of his time on the show well it's interesting I'm working on uh, out of my mind uh, which is the tail end of the Buffy Riley relationship and Mm -hmm. it's so um interesting to look at the way in which the relationship falls apart and then to backtrack doomed is the 
pivotal episode in their relationship. Yeah. I mean, Hush, Hush is the reveal, and then this episode is where do we go from here? And right. the fact that this one is so bizarrely assembled I, informs their relationship for the rest of the time. I think that um, What Are You mm-hmm. uh, is very telling about Riley's insecurities yeah. and the way that he re- approaches the relationship. But what's missing is, you know, if... If Buffy is our view into the world, if Buffy is our proxy, then we kind of need to be sold yeah. Riley. Mm-hmm. We, like, we need to understand, you know, his, his redeeming qualities can't be that he's not a murderer and a rapist. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Not being a negative is not a net positive. Exactly. And so... um what what you have up to this point only is the strength of Marcus Blucas's performance, right. and I, like I like him. I think that he's um, he's a solid actor and he does what he can with the part. Mm-hmm. But there are no he's not there's just not he's not given enough. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, a couple of funny lines. Well, what I was thinking about was. Um, I guess kind of notoriously, the fans weren't warming to Oz early on. Oh yeah, um, yeah. The the Oz was sort of brought in to uh, bring Willow's interest away from Xander and to right. be a foil for mm-hmm. uh, for Willow, and the fans weren't warming to him, mm-hmm. and so. Whedon specifically wrote the scene in the van. Mm-hmm. To get the fans to like him. Wait, the and one where crap, wait, when you're kissing, when I'm kissing you, you're kissing me. That scene. Uh, yeah, 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 that scene. That scene. We, yeah, we mm-hmm. didn't specifically wrote that so that the fans would grow to like Oz, mm-hmm. and, and so they know how to do this, right? But that van scene is totally missing from this episode. Yeah. What, what? I mean, what is the um, what is the phenomena where two people uh, bond in a moment of intense crisis? Right. Relationship. It's what Sandra Bullock is complaining about to uh, <laughs> Keanu Reeves and Speed the right. entire time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the running joke. But this episode is that. Yeah. That it's doomed. Get away. It's doomed. It's not going to work. Oh, we saved the world together. All right, let's make out. Right. Exactly. It's just awful. And the whole, like, I can feel my skin humming thing <laughs> is terrible. And my every inch of me. Ugh. Yeah. Keep your inches to yourself, exactly. buddy. Nobody cares. <laughs> no, it's, it's really terrible. And we never really sell. Like, Riley's big pull for Buffy is that he's normal. Right? You know, he's just a normal right. guy. And then when he's not a normal guy... You know, that freaks her out. And, like, I get it. At the same time, how is Buffy ever going to date, a, like, a normal guy? You know, I mean, her life is supernatural. And it's always this, you know, a lot of Buffy is this kind of contrast between her trying to preserve the normal parts of herself. You know, the the family and the friends and, you know, all the normal high school things. And they did that really well in Homecoming, where she's desperately reaching for Homecoming Queen as, like, this symbol of normalcy for her. Right? Which, at the end, right. she still doesn't get because she's not normal, because that's not who she is, because she is inherently supernatural. Um, not that I think that necessarily that makes Riley a good match for her because the things that make Riley a bad match are not whether or not he's normal, but the fact that he really 
I mean, throughout the run, does not seem to be able to handle the fact that she is stronger than he is. Right. Well, I mean, which you're coming up on. Yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the other thing, too, is that, um, I mean, I think it kind of builds to a point where you notice that, you know, Oz has lunges in and kisses Willow and becoming part one. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Panicking? <laughs> oh, my God. I want to find someone to panic with me like that. Right. <laughs> right. But all of Riley's. It's just baffling to me because all of Riley's romantic lines are in some like the just the painful treacle yes. are in some way uh, redirections of his responsibility in the relationship to her. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have a lot to learn about women, don't you, Riley? You're going to teach me. Gross. <laughs> it's not her job not her to job. teach you. Right. How to be in a relationship, dude? Like, <laughs> he uh, the there's a line in an episode later on. Uh, why would you think I would do something like that? Because I'm so in love with you, I can't think straight. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. You're stupid because she's so good, so it's her fault. Exactly. I mean, so many of his lines abdicate his own responsibility for his behavior yeah. in the relationship. Yeah. And I mean, to their credit. I think that it builds to something that feels real mm-hmm. and interesting uh, in season five. Right. Uh, there's a problem with one aspect of the way it turns out, mm-hmm. but we won't get into that because that's a different rant. <laughs> calling, uh, why didn't I, I think of calling a girl stupid and telling her she's wrong about not wanting to admit to date me? Oh, like right. that is, yeah. Apparently that's the way that this is supposed to work. Right. No, and it is. You know, this whole thing, like, I understand that I think what they're trying to do, what they're trying to do and what they're actually doing, I think, are two different things. I think they're desperately trying to make him... You know, like this idea of romance and this idea of like being so into her and so like and fighting for her. But it it reminds me a little bit of like kind of the Aaron Sorkin problem that we get in uh, everything that Aaron Sorkin writes, where his idea (laughs) of romance is that a woman says no and the man says, I'm coming for you, Jordan. You know, and it's like. Yeah. Whatever. Like, you know, if a woman says no, she says no, and you have to respect that. And then, you know, if at some point she changes her mind, fine. But you deciding that you want this enough for both of you is not enough to make it work. And then calling her, you know, calling her stupid and self-involved and all of this stuff is not helping your case, Riley. (laughs) Yeah, there, he has a specific line mm-hmm. uh, that I was struck by in this one. Uh, I'll bet there is some good-looking guy that done you wrong, but mostly I think you just want to stay down in that dark place. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, is that supposed to make us like him? But second of all, uh, it really reminded me of Spike yeah. in season six. Yeah. Um. Like the things he says to her on the balcony mm-hmm. and the 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 way he seduces her as one of the monsters. Yeah. Now it's disgusting and weird and bizarrely hot because James Marsters <laughs> is saying it in season six. But it's evil. Like it's it's self evidently 
well, to right. her detriment. Well, because the but thing is, he but, is evil. Like, that's the thing with Spike, right. is that he doesn't have a soul. And so when he says that, and also when he says that stuff to her, that is after she came back from the dead. Like, she does right. have a darkness then that she doesn't have yet. At this point, right. she that, doesn't have it. Yeah, so it, it just is always... One one of those works and the other does not. Mm-hmm. And and your your Steve Rogers Captain America should not be saying the same lines as Thanos exactly. in order to try and convince her. <laughs> like they're supposed to have different dialogue. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean the thing is that it does and the thing is that with Spike, Spike does have this ability to like have this insight. And when he says stuff, it's usually because that's actually what's going on. And in season 6 with Spike, that is what's actually going on. She is reaching right. for that dark place because she can't be in the light because the light is too hard for her. It is too hard for her to come back from having been in heaven to this, you know, it's hard and it's bright and it's too much you know um so she's really struggling at that point but at this point she doesn't have that so when riley says it it's not really you know a sharp observation as it is just him making up reasons to yell at her in the street you know and with spike like he actually is onto something and i feel like they had this observation with her in season four and it didn't work and they brought it back in season six when it did you know because she had been touching that darkness and she was using spike to kind of just feel anything when she could feel nothing because she had been completely traumatized by this experience you know so um yeah like riley is (laughs) Riley's just I don't know it feels like he is just this amalgamation of qualities that don't really cohere into an actual character you know he is supposed to be represent representative of these things of normalcy and of Iowa you know and of like this this kind of you know corn fed you know homegrown you know farm boy kind of thing when in reality what he is is something else and actually what he is I think is something a lot darker yeah, I mean, maybe there's a reading there of it was doomed to fail in the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm, I, uh, this may not get at intent, but it may work as an interpretation of the text mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, you've got two wide sides of the spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, but both of them are essentially a guy telling you what you think and what you feel. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of, you know, hashtag cookie dough shipper, figuring it out for yourself mm-hmm. and, and knowing yourself. And, um, uh, you know, maybe then the relationship was always supposed to fail. And I think there's signs in Hush. Yeah. Uh, like, they, there are a couple of signs along the way that, that maybe that was the case. Riley turns into one of the gentlemen in the dream sequence in the opening of yes. Hush, mm-hmm. which to me is an indication that Buffy's subconscious is uh, trying to warn her. Yeah. And she says it's doomed. Mm-hmm. But, you, st- I mean, even if that's the case, you still have the problem of her going to his dorm room at the end of the episode, not feeling properly motivated. Yeah, no, it really doesn't. I mean, she just, after all of this, it's doomed and whatever. They have this moment where they fight, you know, this weird apocalyptic whatever 
demons that don't really matter. Um, she defies all laws of physics, I guess. Physics and the Hellmouth are just different. She manages to pull the and they, you know, they work together to like pull this guy back and kill him and save the world and all that stuff. And then suddenly that makes it a relationship that she's going to get into. I mean, the, you know, the thing is, in the end, every relationship is doomed. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, let's face it, right? Like either you're going to break up or somebody's going to die. Like something's going to happen. It's going to end at some point. Like all relationships are doomed. Um, so I think that like her her perspective on it, that it's it's not going to work. I've done this before, you know, but she she really hasn't like her relationship before was a star-crossed thing with angel he's a vampire she's a vampire slayer that was this epic you know like worlds crossed to be together kind of thing and you know riley is basically just a dude i mean he's a dude who works with a military outfit and like understands you know hostiles subterrestrials and whatever but he's still just a dude you know yeah so yeah yeah and i've been trying to parse out the uh the buffy dating history mm-hmm. uh to this point um it, it sort of we all know where it goes and in uh out of my mind him standing there and says that makes me just what joe normal then just like any other dude and mm-hmm. she says uh that's not enough for you and he said that's not enough for you right and uh you know, in a in a weird way, this episode validates that premise mm-hmm. because uh, you know she wants she says she wanted Joe normal. Right. Things were not working with Riley until uh, they discover who each other are in Hush, mm-hmm. and that's the source of their first kiss. And then um, things sort of go, and Buffy tries to back out, but then this episode sort of says trauma and violence and whatever and then they're together mm-hmm. um i i'm not sure what episode if it's uh i'm not sure where this dialogue occurs but there's also a scene where buffy and willow are walking uh together talking about the, uh, their relationship mm-hmm. and buffy says i don't know i guess i, I just feel like something's missing mm-hmm. and uh willow says he's not making you miserable and she says yeah why do i feel like love has to be this big dramatic problem with pain so forth a vampire jumps out she stabs him mm-hmm. and she says i wonder where i get that from right. <laughs> so she conflates uh sort of violence and power and relationships mm-hmm. i mean that's what to me what that scene is sort of indicating right mm-hmm. which played out with angel uh which in a weird way played out with parker and now this episode, without giving us really enough moment, like Angel was at least broody hot, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Parker had a couple of good lines. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to make an argument for Parker. <laughs> but now this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so so again, the, the episode is sort of bizarrely validating the idea that once there are signs of pain and power and violence and all of that mm-hmm. then she's willing to enter into the relationship and again that plays out with spike yeah no i think that plays out with spike but like here i don't know i think that part of it is that how is she going to have a relationship with a regular 
guy because she can't ever share that part of her life with him. She can't ever be everything that she is with him. And, you know, with Angel, she was able to be that, you know, and it was doomed because he was a vampire and she was a slayer. And, you know, what if she wanted someday to have a normal life with kids? But the fact of the matter is, like, how normal a life is she going to be able to have? I mean, we look ahead to, you know, uh, Robin Wood's mother, Nikki Wood, right, who had a kid. And tried to slay vampires with that and ended up getting herself, you know, killed. Um, Spike killed her, you know, but there was always this idea that like eventually a slayer wants death because it's just too hard. And we kind of see that sort of borne out at the end of season five with the gift, you know, that there right. is a death wish that you just want it over at a certain point because that's that's her entire life. That is her calling. That is her mission, you know. So how she's going to have a relationship with a normal, everyday kind of person, I think is kind of the wrong question to ask. And when we finally get to cookie dough, you know, at the end of season seven, (laughs) we sort of get a sense for it. But also, like, at this point, she's 19. Even at 19, like, even if you're a nice, normal girl at 19, you're growing and you're changing so rapidly at that point that relationships are almost always going to be, you know, short-lived. And, yeah. But then nothing I'm saying is an indictment of any sort. Yeah. It's just we're you know trying to track the patterns. Um, yeah. And and there's it's always tough to tell. Uh, I I mean I think sometimes it's it's tough to uh, figure out what is text and what was intended to be text. I mean in the case of sure. Riley, were they yeah. intending to validate that perspective of she doesn't want a relationship without drama and pain Mm -hmm. because it seems like he was there there's mixed messages of was he brought on to be the opposite of that the uh recover what's the term recovery guy the rebound rebound. yeah yeah or is this again uh a repetition of that pattern that she finds herself in Mm -hmm. until cookie dough right Mm -hmm. and i don't i just don't think it's clear because Doomed is so bizarrely assembled. It is. It is. It's really bizarrely assembled. So it makes it hard because, and when you talk about what is intended and what is actually there in the text, you know, it's hard to tell. And the thing is with stuff that's intended, you can kind of trust the writers that they're going to do something with it. They're going to build it into something. Right. And when you're not sure if it's intended, it's like, okay, well, what exactly is it that you're saying here? You know, Buffy can't have a normal relationship. Um, she doesn't want to have a relationship with anybody who's not normal. So she's kind of stuck in this, in this sort of space, you know? Um, and Buffy's like inability to reconcile what she wants and what she is, you know, kind of provides the crux of her constant unshakable internal conflict throughout the series until we finally get Cookie Dough. You know, I mean, that's sort of like the core of of who she is and what it is that she struggles with in many, many ways, not just in relationships, but of course you go back to homecoming, you go back to cheerleading, right? You know, a lot of the things that were happening in the early seasons show that that internal conflict between wanting to be a normal girl and then knowing that she is one girl in all the world and actually Faith in season three you know, was a big kind of shining a a spotlight on that very thing. Like, this is what you are, accept what you are and be that thing. And Buffy's like, well, sometimes I crave a low-fat yogurt afterward, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And there's just kind of Buffy's struggle with her ability to kind of see herself. Um, 
So, you know, moving on through the rest of this episode, we do have some actually like kind of really fun things happening. You know, Xander, Xander is really interesting. Xander has been kind of problematic, like throughout a lot of the beginning, you know, of the show, the first three seasons, there's a lot in Xander that I haven't liked, but uh, this is like where Xander sort of starts to become, you know, the guy that I, I love as Xander. So when I love Xander so much in the first three seasons, and I'm like, oh no, that's bad. Oh no, that's bad. When he gets to season four and on, I kind of see aside from his relationship with Anya, which is really where he becomes a problem. Um, season four, Xander, you know, is is kind of like this really interesting guy where he sort of becomes the heart of the group. Um, I like him with Spike here. You know, you earn your keep or you don't get kept. He's standing up to Spike. It's really nice. Um, but what we're having a lot in season four is a lot of really interesting kind of identity stories, you know. And for Xander, when mm -hmm. he was in high school, he had this clear sense of identity. He was a high school boy. He was one of the Scoobies. He was the funny guy with, you know, of course, deeply troubling sexual politics. But this season, he's moving into this role of the heart, you know, of the emotion of the person who will talk through all the emotional problems with everybody. Um, and despite not going to college and not being with his friends, he has... I think a growing sense of confidence and like this sense of who he is, um, which is kind of fun to see. Well, I really go back and forth with Xander. Yeah. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was writing my reviews of the first three seasons, um, he now, uh, I, uh, I mean, if you have the sound clip, we should get uh, Cordelia Ray saying, okay, over identify much right. because <laughs> Uh, I, he drove me crazy the first three seasons in many different scenes. Mm -hmm. And there's a critique uh, of the show that says, you know, every one of the characters behaves badly in a certain way or makes mistakes, but the writing generally addresses it. Mm -hmm. And, and it does not. Xander's does is, not as I understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of the criticism and critique of, of Xander. But I think that, um, and I know you hate dream sequences and are not a big fan of Restless, <laughs> right. but I think that I think that Restless doesn't so much excuse um, Xander's behavior mm -hmm. so much as kind of give us a map of it, yeah, mm -hmm. in, in a way that makes it him a little more understandable as, beyond just kind of damn it, Xander. Do <laughs> you know what I mean yes. when I say that? <laughs> um, and and. Uh, I agree that there's a big change between season three and before Xander, the beha his behavior, the things he says, and season four onward. Mm -hmm. And part of that, I think, is very realistic in the way that Xander is humbled by life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think he had it tough for those first three years, mm -hmm. but sort of seeing everyone move on and be successful and go past him and him moving into the basement, I think mellows him out yeah. a bit. Mm -hmm. To where he's less of the season two Xander that that frustrates people, right? Mm -hmm. But yes, there are. Uh, there, Anya is something else to talk about, of course. Yes, well, how he is with Anya becomes you know patently evident like later on in the series, and that is is really difficult. But there is a lot of Xander that, and because of that, like he he doesn't get addressed when Xander misbehaves. It just kind of gets like you know you always think back to the end of the pack. Right. You know, where he remembers everything um, and pretends that he doesn't and sort of gets a pass for it, you know. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I find that Xander is 
God, interesting and crunchy in a lot of ways because there are so many things that he does and he says that we act like it's supposed to be cute when it's not. Um, but then there are a lot of things and especially I like him. I like him more and more as we move forward in general because he really does seem to be finding his own identity um, in a way that that makes him like he's not supernatural. You know, he doesn't have these supernatural gifts, but he has this, he's kind of like the core of the normal storyline. You know, he kind of always brings us back to that. What do you think about uh, the idea? Now, Willow applies to this less and less as time goes on, but in terms of Buffy can't date a normal guy, um, is her relationship with the Scoobies contrary evidence of that? Um, you know, uh, yeah. by maintaining a relationship with Zan, I mean, and you know, dating sexual relationship is is different but why would there not be the same concerns with her friendship with xander and willow and going out and hunting with them right well i mean you know true fair enough because even though willow does you know develop all these supernatural skills xander does not and so right. but i think that i think that honestly the problem with riley or with anybody isn't that are they normal but can they accept you know what i am and i think that that's right. really the difference like xander accepts what buffy is and works with her and of course has this whole hero worship thing with her that she is the hero for him and so his expectations of her are incredibly high and sometimes too high for her to like kind of live up to um as we see as we move through the rest of the series um so xander i think is kind of like the example of the normal guy but also she doesn't have a romantic relationship with him and is there a sense that like in order for a romantic relationship to work that there has to be this you know, wild, dramatic, you know, star-crossed thing. At the same time, she's 19. She hasn't really tried all the flavors of ice cream that are out there. You know, like there's <laughs> there's definitely time for her to, you know, to have found somebody normal. Now, you know, looking back on it, like, you know, Scott Hope was quote-unquote normal, but clearly weird, you know, buying her a clotter ring, uh, before they'd even like gone out <laughs> on a date, and then the Buster Keaton fe film festival thing, Keaton which festival. is just completely affected, and then just dumping her out of the middle of nowhere for really no reason. But that's kind of that's a very normal experience, you know. Parker, for all the horribleness that he is, is a very you know normal experience. <laughs> like, um, so I don't know. I think that I think that the fact that Buffy can't have a normal relationship is more a function of what we want in terms of the story and what she's going to be required to do than necessarily that she can't have one because, you know, I mean, you know, Giles has a lot of knowledge, you know, but he's, yeah. he's normal. He's not super naturally powered. He just knows about the world. And, uh, you know, had there been somebody that knew about the world and that had like, you know, a certain skill set that could be actually useful to her, but Riley's skill set is being the muscle. You know, and she has more muscle than he has. And that's just kind of the way it's always going to be. And his, you know, fragile masculinity is kind of threatened by that as we see as we move forward throughout the series. Well, there is that. There is. There is definitely <laughs> that. But somebody whose fragile masculinity is absolutely not threatened by pretty much anything. Um, is... I mean, I, I was I was just making I, I wasn't making an argument one way or another. I just always think that that the 
the complicating mm-hmm. uh, factor to the she can't be with someone who like Owen she can't be right. with Owen mm-hmm. is is her relationship with the Scoobies right, um, right. and I. I, I mean, all I acknowledge all of uh, Xander's problems, and I'm going to uh, uh, mention this not as an endorsement of what the statement is, but just to throw this out there. Uh, Fran Kazooie mm-hmm. uh, actually once said that the intention of Xander, I mean, if you're, if you're creating a story about uh, you know, you know, what was in hindsight, probably a, a feminist parable right. where there's, uh, you know, a woman is the action hero and um, that, that sort of undercurrent. You need a character like Xander to sort of reflect men who accept what is different in the story versus actual society. Yeah, yeah. S- um, and that was his intent. He doesn't always stand up that way. I know. Don't at me. <laughs> but it was, yeah, and I can see that. And having him there definitely does give us, you know, kind of that element in there. Like the, right. the man who can be the support, you know, as opposed to the hero. Um, and Yeah, I think the man who can get behind the woman. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Um, so, and, and that's what Riley is not uh, for the rest of the season. No, but. Riley is is incapable of that. I think we see that more and more as we keep going. Um, but Spike, on the other hand, now Spike is really interesting. Of course, I love what season four does with Spike. I love the way season four takes away an essential part of his identity as well. So we see like season four is basically a collection of identity stories. And I freaking love identity stories. They make me happy in my heart. So it's so much fun to kind of go through season four. Season four is often, you know, kind of seen as like one of the worst seasons of Buffy or one of the most disappointing seasons of Buffy. I think because we go from this kind of like high school story into this adult story and you know the first three seasons are like one thing and then the the last four seasons are something else and that transitional period can be a little bumpy but one of the things I love about season four is how many like identity stories that we have going on here and never before has an internal conflict been more beautifully visually represented than when Spike raises the wrench to bash Xander in the head and has to grab his own head because of that searing pain and it's just so beautifully represented in this episode um this is one of my favorite episodes for spike even though it's a b story like doomed itself is not a great episode but what happens with spike in this episode i think is just wonderful well it's certainly one of his uh, it's certainly the episode that contains most of his growth for the season i think Uh um and i think the thing that makes that wrench scene so wonderful is the way he's writhing in agony behind Xander, who is continuing to chastise him for not cleaning up and not doing enough work. (laughs) No, it is. It's really, really wonderful. And I love that. And I love that moment, too, where Spike suddenly realizes I can hit a demon, that it doesn't matter to him you know, like who he's doing the violence to as long as he's able to do violence. That is such a huge part of his identity, you know, that he needs to have that. And once he's able to get that back, even though it means that in order to like fight evil, you know, he has to join the side of quote unquote good, not because he is good, <laughs> but because it is the only option available to him. Um, I love that transitional space for him. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, the um, 
I was thinking about something you said, the how all relationships are doomed. Right. Which I, I don't know if I necessarily endorse the cynicism <laughs> of the statement, but... <laughs> You know, yeah. just sort of philosophically, the show is is uh, one of my favorite aspects to it is how steeped in um, existential philosophy it is. And, you know, if you're talking about uh, so existentialism is uh, the universe around us is empty and meaningless, mm-hmm. um, but we are uh, meaning can ensue through the pursuit of it and making choices in our lives that um, are guided by our ethos. Right, if nothing than, you do matters, uh, then all that matters is what you do, man. If nothing you do matters, that, that all that matters what you do. Mm-hmm. So how does anyone have a relationship in that <laughs> philosophical universe? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I can see that being tough. <laughs> I, I mean, the uh, if... Uh, the the source of meaning in our life our lives is our our individual ch- uh, choices and our growth then committing to an individual person at the risk of the the fact that you two might change and grow apart and if you don't just separate mm-hmm. then you're subverting your own choices mm-hmm. uh, and identity in order to keep this relationship together uh, yeah, I mean, from that perspective, it looks like everything is doomed. And I, th- I, I can't remember the, the name of the philosopher who uh, suggested it. But he, uh, the idea was that you always have to be sort of prepared and ready for the relationship to end because you, one of you has grown or the, uh, in order for you to be free to make choices, it necessitates the two of you separating. Mm-hmm. And um, all the way down the line to the cookie dough moment, mm-hmm. I think that that tracks with the way the show um views relationships uh and and down to joss whedon's line in which i have gone back to a few times in my own stuff um a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts right i mean the idea is like relationships aren't necessarily intended to be forever to last forever but that doesn't reduce the beauty and the the meaning and importance of what happened but to cling to things um beyond that time means that we're actually reducing and losing the meaning in our lives Yeah. uh, in order to not die alone. (laughs) Well, one of the things that I said in the episode where we talked about hush is that grief is the inevitable cost of admission to love that like eventually you're going to have to grieve the loss of that in one way or another. And I think that like, you know, as, as cynical as it sounds, all relationships are going to end, that they're going to end either in, you know, a breakup or in the death of one of the people involved, because that is the nature of life. In reality, you know, what, what that perspective does is you have to then look at the moment, you know, that you have that relationship, like for, or the time that it exists, you know, what is it and how is it working? And the idea that you have to stay with someone forever in order for that relationship to have, you know, the kind of meaning, you know, that we we ascribe to that, this one true love forever and always, that kind of thing. Um, it's kind of reductive, you know, because right. once you've made that choice and this is forever and always, then then that's where your personal growth stops. Now, I think that there are relationships in which people 
can continue to be together and support each other and continue to grow. And we see that happen a lot in friendships, you know, that there are friendships that can last for your entire life. But, you know, romantic relationships tend to have this all consuming kind of, you know, requirement of them, you know, that it has to be this one person forever. And that is everything. And that is it. And at that point, as soon as you make that choice, it seems like there is something in that that particular requirement that sort of smothers those relationships. And, you know, I'm not going to say that I understand it or that I've unlocked all of that. Um, but the idea that everything ends, I think, to me, creates, instead of being cynical, creates this space where, like, appreciating that something can only exist for a certain period of time makes the appreciation of it during the time in which it does exist, you know, even more powerful and more meaningful yeah i mean i guess the romanticism uh, suggests that you are not complete without a relationship right and just sort of uh, uh philosophically the idea is you should be complete before you're in a relationship yes and the idea of something being finite um uh I think the uh, just philosophically, the idea is to de-emphasize the fear of the ending as being um, a failure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, one of the things that supposedly imbues life with meaning is the fact that we die. Right. And why should relationships be any different than that? Why? Uh, why should anything else be different than that? Yeah. So, um, but it is interesting uh, that the show kind of goes back and and forth between the two of those but the the thing i the other thing that i was um bringing that up uh, for was um you know if the in the lore of the show if the soul is the um the moral compass and having a soul is what allows us to make choices that are maybe in con um in opposition to our own best interests mm -hmm. but fit with our guiding ethos then um I think that's again reflected in Spike in this episode yeah. and the way in which he doesn't care what he's punching. Exactly. Because he's not, because he's an id monster. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a conscience. So he's completely guided by um, impulse and desire. Mm -hmm. And um, the chip has not actually changed his morality or behavior. Uh, it has just. Uh, put walls around the uh, mouse maze right. that he's running through. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the Spike thing, like Spike's whole identity story for me um, is is really kind of like this fascinating thing for me. I mean, in my narrative theory classes, I teach people about vulnerability and how important it is to like building character, right? You check your character work by looking for a combination of strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerability. You know, and strengths are things that can, um, that are things that you're good at. Weaknesses are things that you're bad at. And vulnerability are the things that can actually hurt you. And Spike, I think, is fascinating to me because even as a villain, you know, even as the bad guy, we always see this vulnerability with him. 
them. And vulnerability is like this, the most powerful thing that you can put into a character. Um, one of the things that I go back to a lot when I talk about this stuff is the Brene Brown TED Talk. I don't know if you've ever seen that where she talks about vulnerability is how people like connect with each other. And for those of you who haven't seen it, which I think is a very small portion of the people out there, um, I'll have a link <laughs> to it in the show notes. Um, but if a character has vulnerability, the reader has like an access point to that character, like even the bad guys. Um, and the main sources of vulnerability can be linked to fear, identity, love, and shame. You know, and fear and shame are usually like the least interesting. You know, if someone is ashamed of who they are but shouldn't be, it can be really annoying. We see that a lot. I don't know anybody who's read the Jim Butcher, Harry Dresden series. There's a lot of that in there. Also, the audiobook's read by James Marsters, so that's really fun. Um, there's a lot of good stuff there, but Harry Dresden is always feeling ashamed and guilty for things that actually are not his fault and not his responsibility, and it gets really irritating after a while. Um, and as far as fear, like, you know, everybody's afraid of things. So every character is going to have certain things that they're afraid of. Um, but it doesn't really become truly interesting until it's linked to one of these more like powerful vulnerability sources, which is love and identity. And love is the most typical source of vulnerability that we'll see in a lot of a lot of stories, especially for men, because we have a hard time having men being vulnerable in any way that is not, you know, still manly. So if they're in love with somebody who doesn't love them back, then, you know, we we have that and that's okay we're going to see that a lot with spike you know in season five when he's in love with buffy who could never love him back um you know, loving someone who is with or has chosen someone else. That's like your classic love triangle type of situation. Um, loving someone you don't have the courage to actually tell them that you love them, um, which we saw happen over in Angel with Wesley and Fred. You know, that's a huge part of that. That relates back to that fear. Um, so loving the vampire slayer when you're a vampire with a soul who has done very bad things, we kind of get into this shameful, byronic hero sort of mode, you know, wailing on the moors. <laughs> It's kind of a thing for a reason. There's a reason why people love Heathcliff, even though Wuthering Heights, and I will say this, is terrible. Jane Eyre is terrible. I don't like all the Brontes. I don't like those kinds of heroes. Rochester, I will fight you, is a terrible fucking romantic hero, but that is a whole other discussion. <laughs> but anyway... That kind of shame story, you know, being ashamed of who you are and your history and your past, you know, while you're in love with somebody who is better than that. Um, we love that. We loved it with Angel. We're going to love it with Spike. That is something that we can really connect to. Um, so shame linked to a love that we don't feel we deserve. I mean, it is the Long Island iced tea of vulnerability. That is some powerful shit and you only have to have a little bit of it and it really hits you with a wallop, you know. Um, but identity stories also are one of these things, these sources of vulnerability that we don't think about quite as much the way that we think about love, but they are so incredibly powerful. And we see that so much throughout season four with all of our characters. Giles is something we're going to talk about. Um, and Giles has huge, huge identity vulnerability throughout the run of season four. Um, but who we are is what we think we are. And when those things get stripped away, like, for instance, you have a chip put in your brain and you can no longer hurt humans, you know, we realize it's not actually who we are. And then you're thrown into this. Well, what the hell am I? Who the hell is Spike? If not somebody who like murders and kills humans, you know, but he is a person who loves that violence, who loves that fight, you know, who loves getting into the scrapping. And that 
that is who he is and he finds that. And a character in Identity Crisis is this incredible source of vulnerability. Um, but it's also incredible, like a really good way to talk about identity is sort of as this comfort blankie. You know, like we wrap ourselves up in our identities to shield and protect us. We are part of this group or we are hard ass bitches or we are sensitive, quote unquote, nice guys or we are whatever. You choose the mask and you put it on and then you know who you are. But once that identity is stripped away, you're no longer safe. You can't hide behind it. You have to really discover who you actually are. You're able to evolve and to grow beyond that identity to understand yourself as you are rather than what you thought you were. You know, and season mm -hmm. four with these identity stories are so incredibly powerful. And Spikes is the one that not only doesn't get resolved, it keeps escalating throughout the entire series, which I think is just incredibly fascinating. So we have Spike, right? Spike come to, comes to us in season two as a vampire in love with another vampire who like kind of loves him back, you know, um, not really, not completely. One of Drusilla's great lines is that we do love, but we do not always love wisely you know um and the show didn't play like drusilla's i wouldn't call it ambivalence to spike but she doesn't have the same kind of intensity of feeling towards spike that i think that we see him textually having for her i mean when she was sick he moved heaven and earth to heal her and when he was in a wheelchair she left him to go out and hunt with angel you know so she just kind of abandoned him there um and the thing is there's this french saying in every relationship there is one who kisses and there is one who is kissed and spike is always the one who kisses you know it makes him bold and daring and brave and vulnerable that makes him incredibly vulnerable so in season three we see that spike loses drusilla of course to the chaos demon who is all antlers and slime right um and there's a huge amount of love vulnerability played out there um you know played out to its fullest and most inevitable conclusion um then in season four spike has lost his identity he was a big bad he was william the bloody he was irredeemably evil with no interest in being anything other than that and now now he's toothless, you know, um, I mean, you know, kind of both, you know, figuratively and literally like he can't bite anybody. And the only way for him to retain any part of that identity is to become the thing he hates, a demon fighter fighting on the side of good. So he fights for good, not because he is good, but because that is the only way to access his identity that is left available to him. You know, and then we move into season five spike, which has both identity because he still has the chip. He has love vulnerabilities wound together as he tries to be you know capital g good for buffy but he can't because he doesn't have a soul so no matter what he does it's never going to be enough it's never going to be good enough so season six spike you know has been seasoned through this pain and this heartache and he's lost buffy and buffy has died while he you know tried to help her like save the world you know um he still loves her when she comes back but he knows he can't have her and he's done trying to be good for her so he wants her to go into the dark for him you know and uh you know and she, the thing is is that this is the one time if you look at the end of once more with feelings right he's trying to leave her walk away let me rest in peace and she kisses him spike is 
finally the one who is kissed, who is chosen, even if it's only because <laughs> Buffy is no longer Buffy and her whole self isn't even there anymore. And then this vampire, this monster who has raped and killed thousands of women, tries that with Buffy and stops. And okay, I'm talking about seeing red. Everybody calm the fuck down. It's okay. <laughs> this is such a hot point. But People feel very strongly about seeing red. There are a lot of things to feel strongly about. And I understand I'm not excusing Spike's behavior, but what I'm doing is I'm meeting this character where he is at chip or no chip. Spike is a monster always has been. And yes, she pushes him away. She hits him. She stops him. But he also has a moment where he realizes what he's done. It's not just that she stops him from doing something that he was going to do no matter what. And then it's only because she knocks him out and he's unconscious that he stops. She knocks him back and he stops and realizes what he's done and feels terrible about it this is a vampire without a soul has realized what he's done and feels bad about it and that is significant that's shame you know and the rest of the season he's been all like you know what i am in the episode the terrible 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 fucking episode as you were with riley when he comes back and then spike is the doctor who has all those eggs for the demons and whatever it's terrible we'll get to that when we get there but the whole thing is his whole thing with buffy is you know what i am i've always told you what i am you know and i think that these things are significant they are significant to his arc the fact that he is a soulless vampire but can still feel shame and feel bad for what he's done and that that is the motivation you know we see him running off on the motorcycle bitch is going to get what she deserves and whatever you know which is deceptive yeah. you know that's whatever i've always hated that bit yeah no it's terrible but that's uh, that's an aside i like i i, I agree with um everything that you're tracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are issues with execution. Yes. Um, I think one of one of seeing Red's biggest um, problems is in its execution, where the themes and the um, handling of the characters is actually consistent. Yeah. Um, and when you sit, when you talk about, um, you know, uh, she kissed him, I, I think what you're describing is his perspective. Mm-hmm. It's not a validation of that perspective. Right. I mean, um, we don't owe each other anything. Like the Buffy doesn't owe him anything. There's no contract. A kiss is not a contract. Yes. That's the name of my new band as well. <laughs> but it's just how those moments would occur in his head and how mm-hmm. baffling, especially to someone who is is um an a an evil interpreted version of a romantic yes. um would in it would interpret uh those actions and then not be able to understand um in into the woods why she steps away from him right mm-hmm. yeah Buffy's arc through all of that is something completely different no um, that's a different thing and the way that we consistently exactly. erase Buffy's trauma you know, throughout all of those things is is an entirely separate issue, which I think is a real problem for me with seeing red and with the aftermath of that. Um, Sure. But yeah, so seeing red has a lot of problems, but from that one perspective, the idea that he would, he would feel shame. He would feel bad because of, I think love as, as poorly as he can understand love at that point. Then of course he goes in season seven and goes and gets a soul you know, and and once he has the soul, realizes 
all of these things that he couldn't see before. You know, I mean, this is absolutely the monkey's paw, you know, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. You know, he got the soul so that he could be good, you know, for her. And once he has the soul, he realizes where all of his thinking was wrong. And then his identity story is completely flipped. Now he's a monster who knows what it means to be a monster. You know, and he arcs his identity from monster to hero by the end of season seven who gives up everything. I mean, not for love. You know, if he was doing it for love, he would have run off with Buffy. If he was doing it for love, when she said, I love you, he wouldn't have said, no, you don't. You know, because now he understands all of that. He does one truly selfless thing so that others may live. And this man, vampire, manpire, monster, whatever you want to call him, who loves life more than anything else. I mean, this is the guy who, I love the world. It's happy It's happy meals with legs, you know? I, he loves the world. He lives in the world. But he decides to end his life, you know, with sunlight so that darkness can be kept at bay for a little while longer. And that makes him like a real hero and he manages to actually arc through that and so in season seven like whether or not Buffy loves him is truly truly irrelevant and we see that in Touched when he says I'm not saying this Ugh, to you I love that so oh much. my god I'm not saying this to you yeah. because I love you or I want you or I want it's just what you are I love what you are I love who you, what you do I love how you try like these are all the things he truly truly sees now you know and I know there are people out there who don't like Spike, you know, and I get it and I hear from them all the time and it's fine. Um, But for those people who don't like Spike, if you want to understand why those of us who love Spike love him, it is because of this, because he is never not vulnerable at his core. It is always love. It is always identity. The two most powerful sources of vulnerability all wound up together. He always cares about something and he cares deeply and passionately. And he always knows who he is and never knows who he is, but he loves completely and without reservation. And because of course, I've been alive a bit longer than you and dead a lot longer than that. I've seen things you couldn't imagine and done things I prefer you didn't. Don't exactly have a reputation for being a thinker. I follow my blood, which doesn't exactly rush in the direction of my brain. So I make a lot of mistakes, a lot of wrong bloody calls. A hundred plus years. And there's only one thing I've ever been sure of. You. Look at me. I'm not asking you for anything. When I say I love you, it's not because I want you or because I can't have you. It has nothing to do with me. I love what you are, what you do, how you try. I've seen your kindness and your strength. I've seen the best and the worst of you. And I understand with perfect clarity exactly what you are. You're a hell of a woman. You're the one, Buffy. I don't want to be the one. I don't want to be this good-looking and athletic. We all have crosses to bear. 
And doomed for all of its weirdness is where the spike art catches fire and starts to burn. And I freaking love it. And one of the things, Ian, that you talked about in your review of Doomed on um, Passion of the Nerd, which people can find on YouTube. And if you haven't been watching it already, I don't even know what you're doing. Go to YouTube and look up Passion of the Nerd. It's amazing. You're going to love it. You can thank me later. Um, But in your review of Doomed, you kind of talked about this clockwork orange sort of theme going on with Spike. And I would love for you to talk about that now. Sure. I think um, uh, Douglas Petrie in one of the um, uh, extras for season four describes what they did to Spike as clockwork oranging him. Um, And it, the exploration, the way they explore, um, again, I, I, I believe the show is very driven by its philosophical perspective mm-hmm. and the way that they use the chip um, is, is an exploration of that, is an exploration of choice. And if you have a being that is incapable of, if you have an, a being that is essentially an id monster, mm-hmm. what does what changes when you remove his ability to do one of the things he really likes a whole lot, mm-hmm. which is in Spike's case, is killing something. Um, but anyway, in the episode, the freshman Willow asks Riley about Ms. Walsh's specialty of operant conditioning. And operant conditioning is a method of learning that occurs through rewards and punishment for behavior. Through operant conditioning, an individual makes an association between a particular behavior and a consequence, either good or bad. Um, so Spike tries to bite Willow, he gets electrocuted, he learns can't bite anymore. Now, is he less evil than he was before or, um, something different? And that's kind of the exploration of his arc. Um, conditioning is the proper word better than learning. Behavior is not modified through a guiding ethic, uh, or from learning about other people, uh, but because of a reward or a punishment. Mm -hmm. So it's very low-level uh, baby-like training, for lack of a better term, <laughs> um, uh, which makes sense because both babies and vampires are id monsters. Eat, sleep, poop. Right. <laughs> Driven purely by selfish desires rather than morality or ethics. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, A Clockwork Orange is a story of Alex, a sociopath who is psychologically conditioned to get sick whenever he thinks about violence. Um, and I think there's a f- connection to the Buffyverse just in the very definition of the word sociopath. Mm-hmm. A person with a personality dif- disorder manifesting itself in extreme antisocial attitudes, behavior, and a lack of conscience, mm-hmm. uh, which would make every almost every vampire um, in Sunnydale, well, almost every vampire, a sociopath right. by definition. Mm-hmm. Um and I have a slightly different interpretation of that seeing red bathroom scene as a result of that. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, in that sense, then, no good can come from depriving a character of the ability to make choices, yep. be they good or evil. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're you're altering um, – I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing for it. But you're altering uh, – you're, you're not allowing it something, something's essence to be what it is. Yeah, and I think that that – you know, when you look at Spike – like, does he become quote unquote good because he starts fighting demons? Well, no, you know, what he's doing is accessing 
the the inherent violence, you know, and what it is that he loves about himself, this one little part of his identity that, that again, has been lost, you know, and that little part, a huge part of his identity, this this love for violence, you know, um, and and he's only able to access it by fighting on the side of good, but he is only doing that because the choice is taken from him. Um, so it doesn't make him good, but it does make his, his struggle for understanding his own identity so interesting throughout this run in the last last four seasons of Buffy you know we see him given no choice what does he do with the choices that he has left to him um and would he make those choices otherwise now I have this whole theory that Spike fell in love with Buffy way back in season two when he was watching her fight on the videos and loving Mm. what she did you know, um, that he has fallen in love with her. I think he's already in love with her by the time we get to season four. I mean, he, I think he was in love with her in season two. You know? I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. I think that the, and I think the signs are all there. Yeah. Um, Spike is a character that very much conflates uh, violence, love, and sex mm-hmm. as all sort of being the same thing. And in School Hard, the episode where he's watching, is that the episode I think where it he's is watching? The no, episode. Halloween. Ha- was it Halloween, Halloween when he was the watching, watching the videos? The video. Yeah, I know it was in season yeah, two. Yeah, because there's a pumpkin patch right, or something right, right. like that mm-hmm. in, in, in the whole thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, he's standing there in the hallway talking with Buffy. Uh, and she says, do we really need... He's holding a giant spear in his hands. And, and she says, do we really need weapons for this? And he says, well, they make me feel all manly, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and he likens killing her to... Um, her first time right uh he says um i'll make it quick it won't hurt a bit mm-hmm. uh you know lots of kind of gross uh associations in those early episodes mm-hmm. but he's clearly someone that's sort of conflating those two things together oh, yeah and and then um you know his method of getting drusilla back from angel in becoming part two is to choke her out and then drive away with her in a car. And then in Lover's Walk, he says, uh, I've just got to be the man I was. Wherever Drusilla is, I'll tie her up, torture her until she likes me again. Mm -hmm. So all of those hints of um, violence, sex, love, and lust are all kind of the same thing, are there. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in his consuming um, fascination or obsession with Buffy in... Uh, season four Mm -hmm. it's i think it's clear that he's already there like you said yeah uh, wherever the exact moment was it's um it doesn't start with the dream no Um, that's when he consciously realizes it but i think that he's he's well in love with buffy before that you know and it is it is interesting because none of the things that he does even when he's fighting on the side of good even when he takes that beating to protect dawn in season five You know, he takes that beating because Buffy wouldn't like it, you know, because he's just thinking about what she would like and what she wouldn't and not necessarily thinking about what is right and wrong. And when you take those choices away, you know, his his ability to choose is basically taken away until he chooses to get his soul back. And then once he does that, he has this sudden realization of everything that was wrong with what he had done prior to then. And so, you know, he'd done it to be good for her and then realized that he couldn't be good. Yeah, he'll never be the man that she needs him to be without a soul. And I've had um, some people bring up the the beating that he takes 
on behalf of Buffy as being a sign that he's capable of being selfless or changing. Yeah. But the thing is, uh, you talked about identity earlier. Mm-hmm. Part of Spike's identity is to be a romantic. Yes. Romanticism. And what we were talking about, the you are incomplete without a relationship. Mm-hmm. And what's the point of living if you're not complete? <laughs> right. You know, so it 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 stands to reason uh, to me that he would take that beating against his own physical well-being, but because it's a manifestation of his uh, driving romanticism and and perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but that doesn't point to conscience to me. No, it absolutely doesn't. It doesn't it doesn't make him good. You know, it's not what makes him good choosing to because at the end, it's still a selfish choice. He does right. it because Buffy wouldn't like it. And he doesn't want Buffy to be mad at him. And he doesn't want to upset her or and it's not the same as doing what's right, because it's the right thing. It's about doing he did what he did because he loved Buffy. But that's not unselfish. You know, that's not right. an unselfish choice. Big distinction. Big distinction there. That's not a selfless act. Exactly. It's not a selfless act. Um, so it's talking of identity, of course, like one of the big identity stories that I love so much in season four is Giles. I mean, as everybody knows, my favorite Giles in season four is Sweater Giles, who is going through, like everybody else throughout the course of season four, this identity struggle. You know, he's not a watcher anymore. He's not a librarian anymore. He's lost both of those identities. And we've been seeing Sweater Giles in glimpses throughout the season so far, like having his quote unquote orgasm friend Olivia over in fresh in the freshman in the hush and hush trying to make Buffy fight without him in the freshman and then changing his mind about it because he's not sure what he should be doing. One thing about Giles is he's always been certain about what the right thing was to do. And he's uncertain now in season four, um, you know, running and occasionally frolicking in living conditions. We, he shows up at the bronze being down with the new music. He's trying to figure out who he is celebrating Halloween and fear itself and wearing that ridiculous outfit um, pouting that he and Xander will not be needed to help Buffy in the initiative um, you know it's all right no one listens to me in pangs um, it's all right I have more scotch and something blue you know he's really getting more and more depressed and less connected and the more depressed he gets the bigger his sweaters get it's really kind of funny by the middle of the season they're hanging down to his knees like they're just huge sweaters are his overalls sweaters are his overalls um, um, so I really, I love what we're doing with Giles in season four as well as we keep moving forward, you know, all the way to the end of the season when they all have that big fight, you know, when Spike is messing with all of them. Um, and, and he's realizing that he doesn't have a role, you know, but the thing is in Doomed, as we talked about, like kind of, you know, in the beginning that Giles is just weird. I mean, there's that scene in the courtyard <laughs> at his apartment. He sounds like, you know, someone taking a Giles action figure doll and making him talk. And I have a clip of that here it was an earthquake buffy a not uncommon occurrence in southern california no reason to think it was anything more oh i so have a reason a darn good reason the last time we had an earthquake i died yes i know that and therefore i completely understand your anxiety oh good because i'd hate for my little untimely horrible death concern to be ambiguous but unless evidence suggests otherwise i think we can assume that it's shifting land masses and not a portent of some imminent doom now in the meantime I've got a few theories about our mysterious commando friends. But it's not even just that his audio 
sounds off because of the ADR. Like his 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 whole per, like the way that he delivers the lines sounds like somebody playing the uptight British guy rather than necessarily yeah. actually being that. Um, and so Doomed feels like it feels like it was just it's so weird, and a lot of it does feel unintentional. And the unintentional nature of it is what makes you question you know, what's really going on here. So while I have all of this textual evidence for this evolution of, you know, what I call sweater Giles, in Doomed, I feel like we're just kind of getting this sort of hint at like how Giles is, you know, or how we perceive him to be as opposed to like what he's actually going through. So Doomed is is an odd duck in the run of season four in that it doesn't really do anything for Giles. Yeah, he's Google autofill Giles. Yes. I mean, he's uh, he's he's an artificial intelligence pretending to speak like Giles. Absolutely, it's just so incredibly weird. All right, so here we are at the end of the discussion about Doomed. Ian, what is your favorite part? Well, I I I, I wanted to comment on one thing you were talking about. Uh, how people talk about how season four is. Um, not a lot of people's favorites. Yeah. Uh, of course, every every opinion exists, mm-hmm. and because we do stuff on the internet, we get to hear almost every <laughs> right. opinion. But um, the thing that I think that's interesting about season four is even though uh, the arc kind of uh, takes a sharp turn and then crashes into, you know, Frankenstein, mm-hmm. uh, the it's almost kind of fitting. Yeah. It's a weird thing how, um, it, in a weird way, Firefly's early cancellation kind of reflects some of the internal themes of Firefly mm-hmm. and how things end and sort of finding home and, and so forth. And I feel that way about season four. You know, um, they set out to talk about um, change and sort of, um, you know, high school is very coherent. Mm-hmm. You, you have a schedule, you have a, however many periods, and you go one to the next, to the next, to the next. There, a week has five days, you've got two days on the weekend, and then the summer is yay long. And then college completely throws all of that off. Mm-hmm. So in a weird way, um, the ways in which season four are broken, or is broken, uh, bizarrely reflects some of those internal themes of change and uh, you know the unknowability of life after high school and all of that. And I, I kind of love that about that season. Mm-hmm. Um, even if I would prefer to watch almost any other season yeah. in the series. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. It's a, there's a lot of internal conflict watching season yeah. four. There's a lot of great stuff, but it's also you know it's 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 a real serious mixed bag. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, neat that that works that way. Let's watch The Gift again. (laughs) Anyway, um, anytime James Marsters is on screen this episode, uh, it's gold. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love his line. um, uh, I think it's when Xander's talking to him as they're walking out after he's tried to stake himself. uh, And hey, maybe there's an apocalypse coming. (laughs) Really? You're not just saying that? The uh, in Pangs, you've got him uh, wrapped in the blanket mm-hmm. and looking through the window, kind of Oliver Twist style <laughs> the at the life girl, that yes. he can't have. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the way he says, "You're not just saying that," yeah. kind of harkens to that moment. Um, and my other favorite line, which is so dumb, but I just love it, is, "And Percy called me a nerd." <laughs> Percy called you a nerd. <laughs> There's a body in the other room. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, but that's so tough, though, for poor, poor Willow. <laughs> yeah. Does he yeah, even go I, to I love school? that sequence. Yeah, no, it's it's really, it's a good thing. <laughs> I have to say for Doomed, I think my favorite part is at the end with Spike. Come on, let's go fight that evil. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, come on. For puppies and Christmas. I love that whole run from uh, from Spike at the end of Doomed. So I think that Spike is absolutely the best thing that Doomed has to offer. Yeah. the it, A lot of the commentaries, uh, the writers talk about how magical Marsters is. Mm-hmm. How that you can just feed him anything and he turns it to gold. <laughs> yeah, he really is. He's incredible. Yeah. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Dying Rich. Noelle is at Noelle Allowed, and the hashtag is still pretty. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reasons why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our November producers. Jonathan, Noelle, Kristen, Alyssa, Erica, Shelley, Alice, Abigail, and Sarah. This week's special message for our power producers... I told you. I said end of the world, and you were like, poo-poo, Southern California, poo-poo. To find out how you, too, can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. And thank you so much for co-hosting with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this, you know, somewhat less than stellar episode. But can you tell the good people where they can find you and all of your stuff? Certainly, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing episode-by-episode video reviews of Buffy, Angel, and Firefly. That should be finished sometime in the year 2070. You can find those at youtube.com slash passionofthenerd. I'm at Ian Nitrum on Twitter. That's my first name and then last name Martin spelled backwards. (laughs) And we have a website now at passionofthenerd.com that makes all of this easier to sort through. Um, Plus there's some written essays and reading recommendations if you're into this Buffy thing. Absolutely. And also on YouTube for both of us, for Passion of the Nerd and Chipperish Media, Ian and I are actually doing a series of videos called Nerd Chipper, where we talk about things that actually aren't Buffy, but are very, very fun to talk about. And uh, so definitely check those out as well. We'll be back next time with a new man, the 12th episode of season four. Until then, let's annihilate them for the safety of puppies and Christmas, right? Let's fight that evil. Let's kill something. Oh, come on. Come on.